Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about The Case of the Golden Idol, developed by Color Gray Games and published by Playstack for Windows in 2022, and we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up for all of you aspiring detectives out there. The reason we decided to play this game is uh, it was uh, getting a lot of hot press for being the spiritual successor to one of my favorite games of uh, the last few years, Return of the Obra Dinn. Uh, so I picked it up, uh, and uh, Josh, I think you, you quickly joined in once I started singing its praises, yes? <laughs> oh yeah, I've, I heard enough uh, through my own channels too about uh, how interesting and good the game was. Now, Obra Dinn, for those of you who haven't played that game, you're playing as this kind of time-traveling insurance agent who's (laughs) able to see the moment of death of any dead body they find, and this uh, ship comes back into harbor without a soul on board, and you're tasked with trying to figure out what happened to who and when. It had a very unique mechanic about trying to fill in details and telling the story through that. Yeah, and I think um, Case the Golden Idol picks up in a, a similar manner, in a similar time period too, honestly. We're, we're talking some 18th century here. The Case of the Golden Idol uh, depicts some various deaths and various other conspiracies uh, over the course of about 40 years throughout the 18th century. And you are sort of connecting clues and infiltrating, uh, I guess, high society and then secret society and then dystopian society all in the course <laughs> of uh, <laughs> 40 years. It's it's a pretty wide-ranging game, and uh, I don't know, I, I had a great time with it. Um, I really liked the sort of series of little logic puzzles that it presented, and I think that is its main differentiator as a spiritual successor to me. It's not one big mystery, but several interlocking mysteries, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, over Din, it was kind of like you were picking up these breadcrumbs throughout the entire thing. Like, oh, you figured out this guy with the funny looking hat must be the first mate over here. And then you use that information in another scene to figure out, oh, who's sneaking around and skulking? Um, what's the plot over here? Whereas in Case of the Golden Idol, um, things are much more self-contained. Like, um, you don't until the very end you don't have to go back and look at other scenes that you're coming across it's here's your scene here's your puzzle go at it yeah and i think we'll we'll get back to that uh sort of until the very end uh caveat you gave there later but to me that was a pretty big appeal of this game was the fact that you could have a nice little mystery over the course of like a lunch break or you know like um say, a child's nap time um, <laughs> some nice Sunday afternoon. You know, you could sit down, solve a mystery, and then, and then move on. Um, it really helped for me that they were self-contained like that, and I didn't have to keep a million things in my head. Um, there were advantages to playing all of these cases in succession, as you could get some help by um, having that context, you know, back to back to back. But it wasn't necessarily as integral as it was with Oberdin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think another thing that it uh, that Oberdin did, and this game did as well to its credit, is the frozen moment in time with everything. Like, 
how many detective games have you played where you're a character inside the world and you're walking around and talking to people, getting the little story here and there? Like Oprah Din, when you come across a scene in the case of the Golden Idol, um, time is frozen and you can investigate things at your leisure, take a look at the arrangements and positions of things. Like I think um, one of these scenes was mid-explosion uh, when it was going on, which led to some fun artwork. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it totally uh, aided it in sort of the element of hijinks that you were sort of walking into. And I think this is as good a time as any to introduce the game's central mechanic, the exploring versus thinking modes that the game puts you in. You basically have a binary setting at the bottom um, of your screen that goes across and one side says exploring where you are looking at the the picture at hand the frozen scene as josh mentioned the scene in progress and then thinking which instead of the memento mori and the logbook that you had in oberdin you are doing this sort of mad libs like interface where you um are putting the variety of thoughts and clues and objects and people from your exploratory phase into a series of blanks uh, to try and solve the mystery. Yeah, when you're walking around in exploring mode, uh, you'll get dialogue or you'll read a diary or something like that, and you'll see certain words or names underlined. You click on those words and they're added to your word bank. And, um, if this sounds complicated, it really is not complicated at all. They aren't trying to hide these words from you at all. They're trying to throw them at you. I don't think it took me more than uh, two or three minutes in any time to kind of like collect all the words. Yeah, I agree. There is a very specific loop that you were going through, and it's worth pointing out that there is an option to turn off the highlights for where those underlined words are. Um, for me, it was mandatory to have that on. I'm not into pixel hunting. I never will. Never was, never will be. Oh, I think there was an option to turn that on for the interactable objects as well. And maybe you're the kind of like 90s adventure game masochist where you <laughs> want that. If you are, go with God. Yeah, <laughs> we are not. No, no. We are speaking from the point of view of people who turned on those little gemstones that point out where all of the relevant things to your investigation are. Um, you know, you could uh, just do a... Uh, plot and search, click every grid of the, the screen if you want to, but uh, we're not here for that. So yeah, <laughs> as uh, <laughs> um, I, I really liked the, the exploratory phase too, from the perspective of the fact that there were a lot of sort of misdirections and red herrings going on, like the first things you clicked on and some of the words that they gave you, those underlined words that you were mentioning, Josh, um, they weren't always items you would end up using in the solution. And I, I kind of appreciated the fact that they were filling out the world and sort of treating it as a cohesive whole, putting those things there, whether or not they were um, relevant due to the fact that they were there, they, or they would be there even if they weren't, you know, quote unquote, relevant clues. They very intentionally left you some words as red herrings um, in order that, you know, you have to kind of piece together, look at what's happening in the scene and kind of figure out what the, um, what the action kind of was. Now, with a thinking panel, too, uh, I think one interesting thing about it is that there was a kind of the main puzzle to Mad Lib your way through on the left side, and then there were kind of like smaller mysteries on the right side that you uh, could optionally solve, and solving those would often help with solving the big Mad Libs mystery. Yeah, so they, they had... Um 
yeah, the, the, I guess there was only one required thing you had to do with each level, and that is fill out the, the order of events, the who got killed and what led up to it in that, as you said, the Mad Lib style. But there's also, and I like the way that they varied the, the items on the right-hand side of the thinking pane. You know, it wasn't always just like, um, here's the order of events. It was maybe, here's how... Um, this point system works or here's how this person dressed on a given day or here's how the table was set before this person was poisoned um there's uh, some really interesting variety in the the thinking phase uh, rather than just um one specific thing you had to fill out and i think this contrasts nicely with um oberdin's sort of having like three various or not three there were several you know various aspects of, of the ship that you had to figure out you know the person your death etc. Um, whereas this game like kind of varied it from level to level about what they wanted those aspects to be and it made it feel a lot more custom for a given level you know like figuring out what the will was and that one level was a big um, thing that you had to do mm-hmm. and that was uh, I think the second level in the game um, worth saying like I think all these scenes too are uh, tend to be very dynamic sort of thing like I'm thinking of the second level now. Uh, there is a man spontaneously combusting outside the <laughs> gate. Um, I think on the very first one, you see someone midway falling off a cliff after being shoved by another person. Uh, so it's definitely, um, you know, memorable scenes. They can keep the drama there because it is that moment in time. Yeah, and um, I want to take a moment uh, before we get up to way far deep into this to, to back up just a second and mention the fact that we keep mentioning Oberdin for a very good reason. Uh, the developers of this, uh, Latvian independent developers, Ernest and Andres Clavens, um, have said that it was a direct inspiration on them. And they've also said uh, that Lucas Pope has reached out and said like, hey, you know, this is clearly really uh, an awesome like next step in, in what I, I tried with um, Oberdin. So I think there's a nice like correspondence in like co-collaboration in the industry between these uh, sets of developers here. Um, you know, these, these as, as far as I can tell, this is the first collaboration between these two brothers um, who have both had prior game experience before this. And um, for my money, they did a great job. Like this is, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely a cool concept. It's fun to see someone take the Oprah Din idea and run with that. I mean, uh, like you said, that, that was one of my favorite games of the last five years too. Um, and and it's good to see the that kind of like lineage continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, to to recontinue the uh, thread you were talking about on the the thinking pain and the cases and all that, I think the the place where I think they did a great job, sort of innovating and moving on uh, from the Oberdin, is in the variety of settings that they had. You know, they they chose like maybe a similar time period, but um, moving on from like the contained. Uh, sort of bottle episode, if you will, of the ship um, onto a series of different settings. Like you're in a bar, you're in a manor, you're in uh, a secret society cavern. Uh, all of these like various interesting places and all of the different things you can do with it just shows like a range of creativity that um, maybe was aided by the fact that we had a duo uh, with some time and context for what a game like this could be coming after Oberdin. And I think it was a really nice iteration from that perspective as well. 
Oh, for sure. And like you said, each of the scenes had different things they asked you to solve for. Uh, one thing I did like, especially at the very beginning, was when they had you solve for who is who, like put a name to each of the faces. That was uh, very useful, both at the beginning and later on, too. Like, um, once you know who people are, then you can start being like, oh, well, this person had a poison dagger in their pocket. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, so that helps you go out over there. Another thing that helps fill in these Mad Libs is that uh, the words are color-coded. So, like, the names will be in one color. Um, maybe, like, certain nouns will be in a yellow color. Others might be in a blue. Um so that when you are trying to fill in a blank, you are not trying to fill in like a, um, you know what the category is and you know what your options are over there. Yeah, like a Mad Libs where you would know to choose a noun, verb, or adjective, they're basically teeing you up for is this a person, place, or thing, um, which makes sense and definitely helps short circuit some of the overwhelming confusion that you might feel when you first run through the environment, click all of the various items in it, and then suddenly have 30 items you need to place and 30 blanks <laughs> in your thinking <laughs> screen. And it can definitely feel overwhelming from the beginning there. You know, um, I think that is kind of like the most fun you get in, in this game is sort of the slow rolling um, gain of knowledge. You know, you, you get that one thing that clicks in. Like w what people will often mention with this game is, oh, you see... Um, this person's handkerchief has their initials monogrammed on it. And all of a sudden you have that one thing like, okay, I know who this person is. Now you can start to say like, oh, he said that person was his brother. And there's this family tree on this document over here. So I can assume that this person is that person. It just mm -hmm. sort of slowly accumulates. And it's uh, one of the more satisfying untanglings of, uh, of a convoluted situation that I've, I've seen in a game. Yeah, untangling the situation is a good way to describe it. I think uh, something that helps out with that, too, is um, each of these, I don't know, between three to five little Mad Libs uh, segments to fill in. Um, each of these tiny mysteries or uh, untanglings um, is judged independently. And then when you've filled something completely in, it will tell you if you are not close, if you are close, which means you have one or two mistakes, or if you've solved it successfully. Right. Yeah, It. I, I was kind of... I agree that this is necessary for this type of game, because the amount of information they give you um, warrants that ability to sort of test your theories, check it, and then replace things as needed. Um I think you could get into a situation where you're just guessing and checking and using deductive logic to, to sort things out, but I think I only really had to resort to that one or two times throughout the runtime of this. Um, I don't know if you felt similarly or not. No, I agree with that. Um, same, same over here. I think it was really only the last mission where I felt like they did a leap too far, but the last mission was really ambitious too, so at the same time I don't quite fault them for that. Um, but yeah, a lot of this is like noticing a small detail from somewhere within the scene and then using that small detail to like, that's your wedge to kind of like split the whole thing open, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, that, that's a really good way of putting it. It's like your one handhold and then your one thing that you can use to sort of get your fingers in and then slowly just sort of pry or, I don't know, maybe you're thinking about it in terms of a rock climbing wall. You get your one <laughs> handhold and then you use that to grapple up to the next one and so on and so forth until you finally reach your goal. Um, I think... Um, while you're going across that, and, and we already mentioned the red herrings, one really fun thing I found about this game is that regardless of whether information was useful or not, it was entertaining to read. Um, <laughs> there were some really good and interesting sort of side items and uh, in jokes, or you know, I think my favorite one was about the staff at uh, the Cloudly Cloudsley Manor that um, <laughs> every all of their servants just hated them, <laughs> and one, one of them was like plotting a revolution amongst all of the various servants in the in the land it was mm-hmm. it, it's just good stuff you know it was well observed like these out of touch elites humor that i you know it i'm a mark for it but it's also a good thing oh yeah like uh in that one the dinner party one i think is the scene you're talking about like um correct you're going through and you're trying to figure out like what's who's who did the poisoning who has the motive and like they give you a motive for each one of the staff members to hate these people. <laughs> um, like the the one guy, I think he like asked for a raise after 20 years of faithful service. And the guy's like, ah, nah, man. Nah, you're a butler. <laughs> yeah, it's like, let us, let us not talk of these silly matters. <laughs> it's like, well, that guy definitely did it. Um, that was another one of those wonderful red herrings and Mr. X that's in this game. And I like how they can use not only like humor, but just like, good well-observed motive to to try and spell out those um, red herrings that you will undoubtedly you know guess and check against at some point in your your playthrough so i think this kind of leads to what i think was maybe a weakness of the game too um you have the scene you have uh let's take the dinner party scene uh you have four staff members, each of them with a motive to do the poisoning. Um, you have, and then, you know, there's other people who have motives to do that too among the dinner party guests. Um, the way the the game works is after you solve the main mystery in the thinking panel, it gives you a narrative explanation of what happened. Um, but there were a lot of times where I felt that that narrative was not necessarily foreshadowed very well. Like, Yes, you could take a look at the evidence you gathered and say that, okay, this this is, yeah, I could see where they laid the clues for this. But also, like, I don't think they did enough to say that, okay, this is why it wasn't the red herring. Like, when I was solving those main mysteries, the reason it uh, that I knew it wasn't the red herring is because, like, I try the red herring and it didn't work. It didn't work, yeah. <laughs> and then I try another one, and oh, this red herring was the actual solution. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I see the story that comes after it. And I'm like, oh, okay. There's actually this motive over here, and he really snuck around the back or something like that. Like, I feel they revealed the solution, but you aren't like figuring out the solution. Solution, you're um. You're untangling the scene like you talked about before and putting some certain pieces in play. And I feel like the game does that final connection at the end. Mm, yeah, I I think there's a few situa- or a few cases. And for the record, there's 11 cases in an epilogue in this game. Um, I think there were definitely a few for me where the post-solve monologue, if you will, the, the parlor reveal... Um, 
added a few details that I would not have figured out on my own, and I was a little surprised to read them even after I had quote-unquote solved the case. But I think by and large, they they had enough breadcrumbs for most of them for me. Like that was a rarity for me rather than a a, a consistent thing. So I, I agree with you in the, in the fact that there were a few cases that... <clears throat> A few cases that were a little more complex than my brain could handle that, you know, I, I maybe lucked into a solution after uh, a couple things and didn't fully realize what, what I was saying was correct. Um, and then the game connected the dots for me. But um, I think for the most part, and the dinner party scene, I think was definitely one for this where I think I did actually sort of find all of the eventual breadcrumbs that would have tipped me off to the various things there. Um and, and, you know, I think it's going to vary from person to person. Like, here's a question that I think might help us elucidate that. Um, did you, on every level, find every word? Or did you just start going once you had enough to have enough information to, to begin solving? Oh, I'd find every word first. Um, okay, me too. Just to That's make sure I've seen everything, yeah. And I really like the kind of, like, you gather the words at first. And first, you're just at a word hunt. You're not even, like... You're noting the locations of things to come back to later. And then you play around with the thinking panel a little bit. And then you're like, oh, wait, what was on that note from the doctor? Let me go back and read that. And then you, that's where the meat of the game was for me. And it was a fun loop for sure. It is. It's always the go up and hoover up all the clues and then come back and be like, all right, there was one of those that I saw like some clear, one clear connection. Like if you get one clear connection in your first like loop through to gather all of the words up, you got a stew going, baby. Um, <laughs> you, you can start to, um, you know, figure out like, oh, okay, well, if, if we know who this person is and we know that, you know, as I mentioned before, maybe a familial relation, maybe they have blood on a dagger and this other person has a dagger wound or something like that. Um, my favorite one uh, of these, and I think this is my maybe my favorite scene of the whole game, was the, um, the, the case number four, the first one in the Cursed Inheritance where you're at the inn and there's the... Uh, people playing cards and drinking wine downstairs and, and the murder scene upstairs. Um, I really liked how you sort of had to like figure out the order of events there and who was staying where and who was not present, who was playing at a certain time, who was gone for a certain period of time. And then they had a great, that was sort of your introduction to red herrings as well, because there was also like a bunch of names of people who were just incidentally there, like the constable. Um, or the axe murderer. <laughs> yeah, the incidental <laughs> axe murder. <laughs> now that was a great touch, and that was a strong scene too. Like, um, you figure out like it has you put together who is at the card table when, and kind of by uh, you know um, by extension who is not at the card table, and then they use that to be like it was somebody not at the card table when the murder happened. Da 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 da. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but the bar scene music was great. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, my coolest scene from this was the Inquisition, um, where, you know, you have your dystopian society, they're passing judgment using the golden idol. Uh, which you understand to have these magical powers. Um, And this was my favorite kind of like narrative use of the Mad Libs mechanics. 
Um, mm-hmm. I had most of the left side, the main mystery, filled out. Um, I knew I had one or two things wrong, and um, by kind of a process of elimination, using that kind of information, whether I was close or not, I was able to figure out the um, one thing I didn't have correct was where it's like, oh, the um, the criminal was judged guilty, and they took away uh, 88... X merits, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, I'm like, I thought it was 88 merits, or 88, I don't know, dollars, or something like that, but... um. The eventual solution was one of the other yellow words was years, and they used the golden idol to take 88 years away from him. And that was kind of like the the cool revolution of like, wow, uh, mic drop, like this story just got more serious than I thought. The mystery pivots from um, normal and historical to supernatural pretty early, but that is the first, I think, well, maybe not the first, but one of the more explicit um, definitions of it, right? We, we haven't mentioned up until this, and we really should, is that the one common thread throughout all of these is there will be the golden idol in every scene. And how it relates to that scene is, is very, sometimes it's just in a safe, just tucked away. Sometimes it is... Um, you know, in someone's luggage, it's not even being used. Other times it's pretty central and pivotal. Um, but the case of the Golden Idol is like a 40 year long case and you are sort of at each of the various steps of it. But going back to that tribunal case that you mentioned, Josh, um, what I really liked about that one is um, you were, as you said, there, it was the point at which um, the Golden Idol has allowed one of the main characters to become the leader of the quote unquote new order. And um, he's in, invented this sort of society where there are four virtues, and each of the virtues, if you violate them, have a different sort of demerit that they um, give you as a, a person. And so there's a bunch of people on trial, and you have to figure out how many points of merit they were deducted, and who had the, the biggest deduction and got uh, the life sucked out of them by the idol. And this was uh, where I busted out my notebook and had to do some light algebra. <laughs> <laughs> and they said you'd never use algebra when you were grown up. Yeah, well, I certainly did. It was like, all right, well, I know this person had one uh, virtue one violation, 22 virtue two violations, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so you could sort of set up a series of equations and solve it. And I can't believe I just said I used a series of equations to solve this video game. Um, but here I am. <laughs> just bust out that Excel sheet. I mean, I I didn't use it in Excel. I just did it on paper. Um, <laughs> I do enough Excel in my day in my day job, um, and uh, so yeah, I just had a notebook and, and scribbled it out there, and it was it was fun. Like you know, I I can't believe I'm saying that I had fun doing some algebra for this game, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, it's really interesting going through the game, seeing the new scenes, too, because they're always so, I don't know, I never knew what to expect with the next scene coming up. Like, um, you go from dinner party to, like, murder at the lighthouse uh, to trying to conquer the country and things like that. Like, it it takes you (laughs) all over the place. Um, And the pixel art on this game was really interesting, too. Like... I really like the character designs for this because you'd recognize people and you'd be like, mm-hmm. 
where do I remember you from? You think about it, but like that they were able to get that much characterization into these portraits and everything. And I think speaking to um, how well it was done. Yeah, the the art is interesting in this game because it, when I first saw it, I was like, "Man, this is kind of ugly. It looks like um like pixelated Ren and Stimpy or something like that. Like these characters are kind of caricatures, right? You have um you know debutantes who are just like constantly swooning and have like over exaggerated features, and then you have um you know bolloviating politicians who have you know jowls flapping and um, all kinds of you know, repugnant features. Um, but then I found out that they actually were inspired by the art of a couple specific artists, Gustavo Dore and William Hogarth. And I, it, I guess looking that up made a little more sense to me. I don't know if it's like a direct one-to-one, but there's definitely a really interesting lineage with this style. And I do feel like it's sort of caricature adjacent. Um, I don't know. What did, what did you think of it? Like, did you enjoy the art style? Did you think it was like additive or not so much? There were there were very detailed pixel scenes, and yeah, the um, I think the character art definitely drew clo- close to being caricatures. Like the heads on people were definitely cartoon proportions, um, but they made good use of that. Like, I think I I'm more impressed that it's like I'd get to a later scene and I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Like when you're watching a movie and that guy's in it. And you don't know what they're from, but you you know you've seen them before. And I think that kind of like added to the world building experience to me that I might not remember everything about the world, but I, you know, I see the threads going through it a little. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like a character actor, you know, like when you see a character, a certain character actor in a movie, you're like, oh, I know that guy. He's the criminal and he's the criminal in every movie. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it turns out in this in this game, it is actually representative of the same person, um, which is helpful. Like, you know, there is both, uh, I guess, a help and harm to your logic continuity for having all of these scenes be so disparate and self-contained versus also having them you know have a continuous set of characters that are running through them um i guess the first instance of that would be the titular idol but quickly it becomes um you know the people who possess it uh, and then the series of people who possess it and die and possess it and die and possess it and possess it and possess it and are of course reincarnated (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's talk about that last level yeah so i think this is kind of the the coup de gras of the game um the final case um we'll call it uh the big picture level i don't know what its actual title is called but um this is basically where the game shows you that all of the various scenes that you have been in throughout the game uh here is how they existed in context Uh, in the countryside of, I guess, 18th century England or or wherever you are, uh, sort of fictional England. And it sort of pulls back. It allows you to access all of your previous scenes, solved puzzles as far as you solved them, that is, and asks you to basically paint a picture of uh, an attempted coup by the new order uh, from the king uh, of England that's sitting yeah, the leader of the New Order, Lazarus Hurst, is off to have a chat with the king. Or that's what you learn about in the previous um, the previous scene. Um, and during this, you're able to go back instantly to any of the previous scenes that you have played and solved and look around at some of the clues over there. Uh, 
I think, like I said, it was an ambitious level, and I think they did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, what I like about that level is that you can access each of those previous levels and then compare it to what is happening in the current level in the present, right? So like, obviously, as we've said a few times, this game took place over the course of 40 years. So the manor scene took place, you know, maybe 30 something years before the manor as you are seeing it in the final chapter. But you still can bring the context of whose manor was that? When did they die? Why did they die? Why is it gifted to the order now? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, so there's all kinds of interesting like clues and things that you can bring into your solving of that final mystery and order of events and and what happened that day um, that helps you understand um, that you would not know if you had not correctly solved and intuited and you know absorbed what happened in each of the previous ten scenes before that. Well, you know, I might disagree with you on that one here. I mean, it, it was a great last um, last chapter. Like, you had to solve who was what and where, and who. Uh, I think there were three murders to solve. Uh, my favorite being um, Lazarus Hurst being blown away by Peter Bagsley, who won a cannon from a sailor uh, and a gambling match the day before. Uh, so the Lazarus and his idol in the New Order disintegrated away with him. Um, but the spoiler alert and kind of like the, the key thing that you need to figure out here is that Lazarus Hurst is actually, um, uh, what's his name, Edmund Cloudsley? Edmund Cloudsley, yeah, Edmund Cloudsley. So Edmund Cloudsley was originally the person who um, inherited the idol, correct, in one of the first scenes. No, it was, his father was going to gift it to the Order, and it was at the right. end that Edmund yeah. Cloudsley hired the not-axe murderer to do some murdering. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then eventually it found its way into his hands, where he then used it to steal the life of a certain, the life force of a certain individual, and um, basically give himself youth again. So he eternal went from being- youth. Yeah, became an old, you know, basically gained 40 years of life, turned himself from an old man into a young man, and then reemerged as Lazarus Hurst, where he infiltrated this order that was supposed to get the idol, became its leader, formed a new order, yada yada. Um, Honestly, like, I, I didn't fully put that together until, like, it was almost spelled out for me entirely. <laughs> it was a, a bit of a logical leap from my perspective. <laughs> No, I kind of agree with you on this one. Um, This was the one I had to go online to solve what was happening for the murder that happened in the morning with the cannon. Um, And I think the reason for that, like the scene before that, you learn that the idol can take years of life away from people, like we talked about before. Um, And the game is also telling you throughout the game that the idol takes something in and then it spits it out uh so you can like take gold from seawater or you can um uh take you can put air into a sealed vessel and cause it to explode you can take heat from something transfer it to another place yeah Yeah. so if you could take life out of someone that means you can put life back into someone so i was getting that far into how what the game was wanting to tell me but I wasn't making the connection that Lazarus was actually Edmund Cloudsley and I think they could have added some more 
clues or hints to that inside that last level. Yeah, I think maybe what it was is that whole scene at the manor with the cannon blasting, you know, and Peter Batsley, or I can't even remember his name. Um, he had kind of faded out of the story to that point. Like, I remember him being, like, kind of a funny character because he was always gambling. He was always short on cash. He was kind of a fuck up. Um, and then, like, all of a sudden he reemerges and, like, gets the girl and then blasts the cult leader with a cannon. Like, that was just, that was a lot for me to absorb. <laughs> soon, you know? um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad it worked out that way, don't get me wrong. But um, it was still uh, a logical leap that was quite far, and I, I don't know that all the seeds were quite there for me to, to pick up on. Yeah, there was um there were some pieces that didn't quite fit in the plot that they told you before. Like mm-hmm. um after the exploding vessel um scene where uh it's who is it? Uh William you know, the pretty boy thief. Yeah, I know the guy you're talking about. Um he him and his two associates are kind of come across this booby-trapped thing, Will survives, and inducts his new friend Lazarus into the Brotherhood. You know, the ancient secret society sort of thing. Um, but he's also buddy-buddy with David Gorin, who was uh, William Cloudsley's faithful servant at that point. And, and assassin. Ne- and assassin, yeah. You know, does the dirty work. Um <laughs> But they never really explain why they're buddy-buddy at that point. And it makes sense in retrospect. Um, But it's kind of one of those things where, like, the game tells you what's going on. And you just kind of accept it because the game has been telling you what's been going on up to that point, too. Yeah, there's, like, this curious balance that this game is trying to strike between you figuring everything out for yourself and then it suddenly... Um, you know, pulling the curtain back and saying, and here's what was happening all along. And Mm -hmm. like, I think it's like, it works for me. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think it is, um, you know what it feels a lot like to me is, um, it feels a lot like Knives Out to me, like where it was practically unsolvable from a watcher's perspective. But then once you see it, it totally makes sense. Um, And I, I, I don't know, like, I'm not usually one who's like watching a movie, even if it's a mystery movie, to try and figure out what's going on or solve it. I'm kind of just there for the ride. And I think this game succeeds in that regard. But I don't know that it's like in its overarching solution making me feel rewarded. But it is definitely making me feel rewarded from moment to moment, solving case to case. Mm hmm. Yeah, the core gameplay loop of the game is definitely solid. Uh, definitely wor- a game worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there, you know, and it's really going to depend on like what you're there for. Are you there to be the guy who like sees all the moving pieces and, and solves it? Or are you more there for like, I just want a cool story. And then when they make this nifty reveal, whether or not it's uh, warranted, I, you know, I, I will be happy to see the solution. And I, I don't know, maybe a smarter person will have seen all the moving pieces in this game and fully intuited the the outcome. But that was not me. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I think they were trying to allude to it in that last level, but yeah, I think agreed. that they could have, um, they could have done much more towards that. 
Yeah. You know, I'd be interested in it, it. The problem with this is like we can never go back and experience it again for the first time to fully see if that's the case. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to come at it with fresh eyes. So I think really the only way to possibly know whether or not this is succeeding for the vast majority of people is like, I don't know, some sort of double blind poll or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I maybe it's just suffice to say it was fun. And, uh, you know, the deductive reasoning aspects of it are, are pretty darn cool and good and generally speaking, rewarding. Uh, well, with that, uh, let us bring all of our clues to the parlor and reveal our three-word reviews. It was the butler. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. My three-word review for The Case of the Golden Idol is puzzle, not mystery. The Case of the Golden Idol is an interesting continuation of the Oberdin lineage, expounding on the formula by offering short and mostly self-contained narratives. At the end of the day, though, you aren't solving mysteries. You don't figure out who done it, but rather you examine the crime scene and, through a very mechanical system, figure out how to describe what you have seen. On success, the game describes the who, what, and, importantly, the why. You aren't playing as a detective, rather you're playing as a reporter. I did like the interesting mechanics and the novel way they tried to tell a story. But with the exception of a few highlights, the mystery aspect of this game fell flat for me. I was told the narrative instead of figuring it out on my own, and for me, that's ultimately a fatal flaw in the mystery genre. That said, this was an engaging game moment to moment, and it had novel mechanics, and I think it is worth playing for that, but just know that you are getting more of a puzzle game rather than a mystery. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a fair um, fair evaluation, and I think it goes uh, kind of hand in hand with what my three word review is. Uh, my three word review is real deal reveal. The case of the golden idol has all of the things you want from a deductive reasoning game: an easy to grasp system to perform your deductive feats, a breezy half hour per level structure, and an overarching plot that ties the various mysteries together. If you have an eye for detail to figure it out. It was always satisfying to see how the accumulation of data snowballs within each case, and even more satisfying when you finally realize that these are not disconnected murders due to the recurring characters, items, and themes. The final level is the true final exam for your deductive skills, and it peels back a layer to show you how all of these cases weave together, not just due to the idol, but through their shared world, geography, and systems of power. Overall, the case of the Golden Idol is a satisfactory spiritual successor to the return of the Oberdin, and keeps me interested to see more games in this genre, as long as I hit this bar of quality. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skershot. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on solving mysteries.
I definitely think that there is um, a more experimental streak that you can get on with a short game. If you have um, one or two hours of gameplay you're trying to justify, then you can get out there a bit more. If you're trying to make a game that's 30 or 40 hours worth of playtime, you really better know that what you have is good. So yeah. It's mm-hmm. good stuff like, you know, any, see any tactics game that we played last year or this year. Um, that's good stuff. But also, like, proven systems. It's variations on a, a proven system rather than something that's more novel. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, really the whole point of my three word review of something like an Elden Ring is that, you know, it's taken literally decades to get to the point where you can justify hundreds of hours worth of gameplay. Um, this game is not doing that. It's justifying a half an hour at a time and it's doing it extremely well. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, every time I sat down to play this game, I was like, all right, I'm going to play one mystery. I'm going to have a very good time. And when I'm done, I'm going to want to play another, but I'm going to not do that. I'm going to wait until <laughs> I feel like playing the next time. You know, this isn't one of those games that I felt like sitting down and just binging. It was a game that I felt like I needed to sit down, solve a case, and then go, I don't know, watch a TV show or a football game or, you know, what have you, you know, something else in my life. And I like that about it. Like, I really like that it had like sort of an episode like function you know, sit down and watch an episode of TV type situation. Oh, absolutely. The episodic nature, you know, fill out your book club bingo card uh, of this (laughs) game was definitely a big plus. Um, The scenes were so self-contained, like they had characters from before, but you didn't have to know anything about a scene before, typically speaking, in order to um, continue on with that scene. Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. And it like, I think it was interesting to see how the characters, you know, it, the, the your favorite ones kept coming back, your least favorite ones kept coming back. Um, there were a lot of assholes in this game. I think the most fun part of this game for me was see all the terrible people die in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you have a favorite uh, favorite death? Favorite death? Oh man, um, I think my favorite one might have been the lighthouse scene where the guy like. Um, he he is continuously yeah he's continuously disproven the return of Griffin Reborn in every single incarnation so he's like well I don't see why this shouldn't work out again this time and so he jumps off a lighthouse and dies (laughs) (laughs) that was a nice one yeah yeah I mean it's hard to feel bad for uh, a secret society you know old money douchebag get his comeuppance um but at the same time it was at the hands of another old money rich douchebag (laughs) (laughs) no i feel like if you're ever in a situation in life where you're wearing a mask then like you should probably reconsider what brought you to that (laughs) to that point there's that old uh i think it's a laurel and fry um comedy sketch um where they're they're playing as uh like I don't know, two, um, two German stormtroopers in World War II, and they're like, do you realize we have skulls on our helmets? Do you ever think we might be the bad guys? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just gotta stop, it, stop, take a look around, and reconsider your life circumstances. Um, if you're wearing a mask, strongly consider why you are doing so. 
<laughs> Wait, uh, if it's one of those conceal masks, not a face mask, we should probably go on record about that. <laughs> uh, yes, correct. Yes. Okay. Maybe we'll <laughs> make sure that's very clear. <laughs> we are in favor of not dying of COVID if you needed a political stance from this uh, from this yes. podcast. Can't agree more. <laughs>